1: kids. Quit trying to perfect the paperless bathroom and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 283 with guest Alex Daly, recorded live Tuesday, October 9th, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now, bringing world-class expert-led training in C#, sharp ASP.NET, VB.NET, SharePoint, BizTalk, Team System and Workflow Foundation on-site to your development team. Details online at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik Combining the best in Windows Forms and ASP.NET controls with first class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who says to air is human, but to throw is exceptional, Carl Franklin.
2: Hey, thank you very much. This is Carl Franklin. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's good to be with you here today. Richard Campbell is with us. Hi, Richard. Hey, sir. How are you? I'm doing
0: well. Boy, uh, I've been getting into the video editing a lot. Yeah, you're smitten. You got the crazy cameras and uh, that nice little silver light thing you put out. It was
2: awesome. I've basically figured out how to do multi-track audio. Got that down. You know, a studio, right? That's my thing. Yep. Um, Do 720p video. Mix it all together, put it together, put it out on Silverlight, 720p, boom. So I'm, you know, I'm like a kid in a candy store. I was telling you, uh, before we started the recording that, uh, last night, four in the morning, I can't sleep. I'm like, I gotta get up and do something. <laughs> <laughs> I had just figured out like all the pieces of the puzzle and I, and I had to do something. So no
0: obsessive compulsive disorder here.
2: Yeah, but I've harnessed it for the powers of good. Uh, okay. <laughs> 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 so anyway, I did that and you'll you'll be able to see some of this stuff at com sooner or later, you know. I'll probably mention it on the show when I got something yeah. real to show. But anyway, let's get started here with uh, Better Know a Framework. All righty, what do you got for me? Well, Better Know a Framework today, uh, I was um just perusing through the list of namespaces and stuff as I want to do. And you know, it's dangerous to do that, Richard, because when you don't have experience with something, you're invariably gonna get some email from somebody who says, Uh, yeah, that's there, but don't use it. So Yeah. Uh uh you know, I just want to preface this one by saying, never seen it before, never used it, don't know anything about it, but it's there and it's worth investigating. Uh but please do your own investigation. Don't take my word for it. I am not the authority on this. So the namespace is system.io.packaging. Oh. And I'm reading from the, uh, the API at MSDN. You know, the documentation. And it says provides classes that support storage of multiple data objects in a single container. And it sort of reminds me of something that um, we used to use back in the VB days where we'd have a single file and then we'd be able to pull data objects out of that, whatever they are, and store them in there securely. So the package class is an abstract class that can be used to organize objects into a single entity of defined physical format for portability and efficient access, and it's based on a zip file. So a zip file is the primary physical format for the package, and other package implementations might use other physical formats, such as an XML document, a database, or a web service. Like a file system, items contained in a package are referenced in a hierarchical organization of folders and files. While package itself is an abstract class, the zip package-derived class is used as default by the open method. And uh, then they have these package parts, which is the abstract class, which represents an object stored in a package, and a package relationship that defines an association between a source package or a package part in a target object. So, uh, and then it goes on with some more implementation details here. So are we talking about a deployment methodology? It appears that way. Um, you know, maybe maybe one of our alert listeners can, um, can bring that up. But there's a package digital signature, which is a composition of parts and relationships representing a digital signature included with a package. And that identifies the originator and validates the signed parts and relationships. And also, uh, they support digital rights management. So, basically, you have a little... Zip file with security and it's program out. Uh, you know it's programmable, so you can pull stuff out of it, and uh, that's it. And it's in system I/O, so you know it's
0: it's really a file oriented, um, uh, a file oriented. And this thing. almost sounds like a mechanism I could use to take, say, an audio file, stick DRM on it, and then send it to somebody. True. A Microsoft.NET
2: Framework, I'm still reading here. A Microsoft.NET Framework version 3.0 uses packages to store content, resources, and relationships for pages and documents using a standard zip file by default. And, uh, there you go. System.io.packaging. Look into it. If anybody's got any comments to share, please send them our way. And, uh, that's good. Hey, I also wanted to mention about the, uh, packaging stuff that there's an XPS document package type that's designed for storing packages based on the XML paper specification, XPS, and that uh, the whole thing uh, is based on an open packaging convention specification. So um, that's just another point of interest. I didn't want to leave that out. I uh, got one comment about the, the GUID, the system.GUID or GUID. Oh, yes? Which somebody said um, you should never use a random number generator to generate a GUID, ever. That's just plain wrong. But no reasons were given. So, uh,
0: you know, I want to know. Please yeah, educate me. Doesn't the built-in function for generating GUIDs use a random number generator?
2: Yeah, it certainly does. Okay. Certainly so what's does. The well, uh Well, I don't know if there any, is any difference. So that's what I want to find out. And uh, if anybody has any more comments on that, please send them to me. And we'll discuss them right
0: here on Better Know Framework. Richard, what you got email-wise? Oh, I got a bunch of interesting emails, but this was kind of a fun one because it it actually pointed out uh, something we forgot in a show. Uh, This starts off, Hi, guys. I just love listening to .NET Rocks. I've been working with .NET for about four years, but I only discovered your podcast earlier this year. I have gone through the archives and loaded all topics that interest me, and I've been working my way through listening. I've learned very much. My iPod tends to choose the show to play next randomly, which was fine until you started the Barcelona contest. Now <laughs> well, the Barcelona contest is about to end, so you don't have to worry about that anymore. So we have a serial thing going on. Yes. Here. Now I have to try and fit in the recent podcast and know to answer the questions. Right. I was just listening to your show on VSTO with Ken Getz this morning. I'm just amazed at how much email we got on this. It was a fun show. Yeah. No mention was made of my favorite office tool, which compelled me to write, though I've wanted to, on many occasions. Uh Uh-oh. I love OneNote and use it for everything, Hmm. including a notebook for keeping a list of my daily accomplishments, along with notes of any communication with coworkers or customers, a personal notebook with a password where I can paste all of my username and passwords that I create. A bonus is when you cut and paste from a web, it records the URL of the site and the time and date. A notebook for my development project with a section for each application in it. I use these pages for everything. I jot down any ideas I have while working, thoughts about changes that I should probably make, details of any decisions I make, bugs I find, Damn. well, you get the picture. A helper for debugging. Since my project is a mix of Native C, Native C++, Com, Services, C++.net, and C Sharp.net, built up from 10 years of research, I find myself with multiple debuggers going at the same time. I use the new, for OneNote 2007, screen clipping tool. If I need to see the values of an object change, I can quickly grab a before shot before executing some code and then compare it to the new one in the debugger. It's great with anything that you know will go out of scope as soon as you hit a button, but you really want the info to live for a bit longer. For me, this feature is a huge help. Keep on with the great shows, Maggie Longshore. All right, Maggie. OneNote. OneNote, and oh, of course no. I use OneNote for <laughs> all my Strange Loop stuff because I have a lot of projects on the go at once for Strange Loop, and also for .NET Rocks and Run as Radio. All of the show planning goes on in OneNote.
2: Well, that's very cool. Do you use your tablet for that? Your slate? yeah,
0: the tablet's great for that because they, especially in 2007 with Vista, the pen abilities are unbelievable. Yeah, I hear that. So it works phenomenally well. But, you know, the funny part here is what we didn't talk about at all in the Ken Getz VSTO show was any programmability with OneNote. Right. Which I've never heard of. Has anybody done any programming against OneNote? I don't know. Let's find out. Well, if you have, send us an email, .netrocks at franklins.net. So it's the last week of the contest. That's right. We
2: have one more winner of a Tom Din brain bag. By the way, we got an email from David Groves, who was the first winner, who actually thought we were joking. He thought, there's no way they're going to send me a brain bag. And he got it in the mail and sent
0: us a picture of him wearing it naked. (laughs) Now, now, I mean, he was showing off the bag, so he's facing away from the camera. And it's only waist up. Okay, so he's at least not wearing a shirt. Right. I mean, I have a brain bag. I can't imagine it was all that comfortable to wear. Without yeah, a shirt. Yeah. And I honestly, David, I don't know what possessed you to send I, us a photo. I really this. don't know, man.
2: Uh, that wasn't necessary. was not necessary. Okay. <laughs> well, anyway, um, <laughs> so this week's winner is, uh, well, first of all, let's talk about the question. Right. And the question was, what ancient technology does Dino Esposito compare Silverlight 1.0 to? And that uh, was the question. The answer, of course, was animated GIFs.
0: And I think every time he said that, we got the giggles.
2: Yeah, GIFs and GIFs, I don't know. Don't write me about that. There seems to, you know, pronunciation-wise, the, the jury is still out on that. Who knows? I think I uh, apparently somebody made the comment that the G is for graphics and uh, therefore it should be GIF. Another person made the comment that, well, it's always been pronounced GIF like peanut butter. So who knows? Anyway. Uh the winner is Jason Hadlock and he's from Houston, Texas and he works for the federal government. I'm here with the government. I'm with the government. I'm here to help. And Jason, congratulations and uh thank you for, you know, working for our wonderful government
0: which we love. And, and that represents the last of the Tom Bin bags. That's right. You which get means it. Next week, next week we're going to choose from all the winners
2: of the weekly Brain Bags for, uh, we're going to choose two of you for uh, the the 24-inch Dell monitors.
0: Yes, mm. 1920 by 1200 pixels of goodness. And no, you can't win both of them. Nope.
2: <laughs> Although that would be pretty cool, wouldn't it? Give them both <laughs> to one guy, one yeah, person. Yeah, side by side. And I say guy only because I don't think there were any female winners of Brain Bags. No, not at all. And they were chosen randomly, you know. It's just the no. demographics. We have a random
0: number generator. It spits out goods, too. <laughs>
2: yeah, that's right.
0: <laughs> All
2: right, so good luck to everybody who won, and uh, we'll announce a winner, uh, two winners next week. Awesome, awesome. So you know uh, it's coming down to Dev Connections time. Uh, it is indeed. We're gonna First have a lot of fun. Of November. I don't know if I should say this, but I probably should anyway. But I'm doing a video project with uh, Developer Express. Yeah, get this. This is gonna be insane. You know how they hit, used to have this contest with uh Mark Miller writing code and Code Rush with chopsticks, and if you yes. could write faster than him, you'd like get to spend uh some time in a in a booth filled with cash that's blowing all around. You get to grab the cash. I remember Did that. you know that? You saw that? I did. Well, they're doing one that's similar to that, and I'm gonna do a video on it at um at Dev Connections, where they're going to take spokes models and train them in how to use Developer Express tools to build an Outlook style application. And the whole idea is can a supermodel build an Outlook style application in 30 minutes? And then I think they're going to have this other contest where uh, if you can write the code faster than the supermodel can do it, then you get to spend some time in the booth or something. I don't know what it is, but. Or maybe it's a, no no, I think it's if you can write it faster than Mark with Code Rush. I think that's what it is.
0: Anyway, it should be insane. It should be insane. Death Whatever Connection. it is, it's gonna be crazy, and Mark's gonna be all over it too. And if you ever seen Mark Miller program with Code Rush
2: and chopsticks you and will talk be blown at the away. same time. I mean, anytime he's speaking, you just gotta go see him. It's just amazing. Um. Okay. So let's get to the interview. This is an interview with Alex Daly that we did while I was up in Boston last week at yeah, Remix. That was
0: amazing run for you. Of course, last week's show with Rocky Lotka was part of that set. Right. And both both shows this week were from that. I couldn't believe how much content you got out of a one day at Remix. Yep. We got three nice uh, three nice interviews. And I was at home. I was connected via telephone to this whole thing.
2: Yeah, it was cool. They got us a suite so we could just spread out and put our equipment all over the floor, and it was fun. So this is an interview with Alex Daly, who is part of the Microsoft Live Labs uh, department. This is a wing of, uh, well, he'll tell you all about it, but it's a wing of Microsoft research that uh, delivers interesting and innovative products based on the web. So without any further ado, let's go to the interview. Hey, Richard, I'm here back in the suite at uh, Remix in Boston, and I'm here with Alex Daly. Hi, Alex. Thanks for coming. Uh, so, Remix is all about the web, all about mixing up technologies. And when I looked at the, you know, the the session that you were doing on sort of gadgets and, and fun stuff from Microsoft Research, I thought, oh yeah, I got to get this guy on .NET Rocks.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. I'm glad you thought it was uh, interesting stuff.
2: So tell me about, first of all, tell me about uh, yourself and, and your role at Microsoft Research and then a little bit about what you talked about here. Yeah,
3: so uh, I'm actually Senior Product Manager for Microsoft Live Labs. Live Labs is an independent organization within Microsoft. It's actually separate from Microsoft's main research organization, Interesting. Uh, MSR, Microsoft Research. Uh, it's also separate from uh, the main online services business as well. And uh, the reason why is it's, it's a culture of experimentation. The lab is about looking at Internet technologies and seeing how we can advance the state of the art of the Internet and help sort of guide the evolution of Microsoft's uh, Internet product and services moving forward. And we've done a lot of work in a number of different areas from search to advertising, digital memories, visualization, navigation on mobile phones. Mm-hmm. It's a really fun place to work, actually.
2: So what were you showing off here? Were you showing off Windows Live Labs here? Something uh, that you're working on? Yeah, I've been showing a
3: couple of different projects. There are three projects here that I kind of went over in the keynote that share a similar theme. The idea that by using uh, multi-resolution objects, by using objects that are a set of representations uh, along a pyramid, sort of the way you look at Virtual Earth or, or Google Maps and you see mm. that we're, we're sending down you know, a, a coarsely detailed map and then mm-hmm. a finer detail and a finer detail, that we can apply that same idea of multi-resolution to images in general even, and even the web in general and use it as a way to navigate the increasingly rich media that's out there, the increasingly large amounts of, uh, of information.
2: I saw a demo where somebody zoomed in to a font that was—it was ridiculously small, like the entire work of Shakespeare's, uh, of you know, Shakespeare play, in a document on the screen. But it was about the size, of, you know, about one foot by five feet. You know what I'm talking about? And then they Absolutely.
3: That's uh, our technology called Sea Dragon. Sea uh, Dragon is actually a, sort of a foundational technology for the labs. We acquired a, a company by the same name uh, almost two years ago. Uh, and the technology is for essentially looking at images or vector graphics. Mm. Uh, so whether it's a fractal or mm-hmm. a vector font or just an extremely large gigapixel image, you can zoom in and get increasingly detailed. But the the system only loads the amount of information necessary right. to fill the screen, so the performance isn't affected by the size of the object. So I, can, right, I mean, it, if
2: you did that with a word doc, you know, try to get an entire Shakespeare play in a, in a single screen, it would just choke because it's got to load all the data. Absolutely. Instead of just the graphical representation at that resolution
3: exactly exactly so we were able to load what you saw was the entire uh a bleak house from dickens which bleak house
0: that's what it was not yeah. exactly
3: a short book it makes a <laughs> shakespeare play look like a uh, you know one pager in the back of
0: yeah the bleak part is its length
3: <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> right exactly
2: and and basically what what happened is they zoomed into a curve on a font on a single letter within seconds
3: Yeah, and and that's the great power of C-Dragon technology is that by leveraging uh, the bandwidth on the network and by looking at only bringing down the information we need when we need it and then using hardware acceleration to smooth the transitions, we can actually create an experience where it lets us zoom into all this information, find as much or as little detail as we want from from as large objects as we want, but get the performance as if it's happening locally no matter where it's coming from, over the wire, over the net.
0: Really? Wow. So there's this concept of infinite resolution?
3: Yeah, it's not infinite. <laughs> Obviously, uh, it, you know, objects have the, a finite size still, but it's the idea
2: that... Anything practical, it, though. I mean, bleak house, come on.
3: Yeah. Or or you take a you know, a gigapixel image. There's a lot of projects out there like Microsoft's H D View from our research department, and there's been work at Carnegie Mellon on building gigapixel images. Mm-hmm. As images get larger and larger and more and more detailed, even as my home digital camera has ten megapixels, the idea of paging through thumbnails, then the medium view, yeah, then the large a view, and sort of loading each individual image discreetly, it takes a lot of time and a lot of energy. Uh, from users. And, and the idea of C-Dragon is that we can make all of this one seamless experience, load all that information over the wire.
2: So how is that done? If the, I mean, don't you have to have the entire text of the Dickens Bleak House in order to make some kind of low-res image? I mean, how Yeah, of course, how does we have it to work? have the
3: whole book. Uh, so uh, the reason it works well is that we're able to just send down uh, a portion of
2: the file, right? So, so, But the processing is done on a server somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. I see. So really what you're doing is you're splitting the processing power the real processing is happening on a server, and then you're only sending down what you need for the particular view. So the, yeah, there must it,
0: be some kind of prethink here to decide what a given view at a given, I guess I would say, height looks like.
3: Yeah, so that's the the interesting part about it is uh, if you look at things like the JPEG 2000 uh, imaging proposed standard, uh, which is one of the technologies that enables C-Dragon and Photosynth the objects are actually built as a pyramid. So they, they actually contain uh, information that helps us know what part of the image to grab. So oh, just by pre-processing the images into a format, like a, a standard format like JPEG 2000 or Sea dragons own custom format, we're able to actually uh, sort of pre-do, you know, pre-process that information, take right. a gigapixel image, turn it into this pyramid format, and we're able to go and, and get the bits we need when we need them. And there's not a, a real-time server calculation happening in order to make that happen.
2: So that uh, a single letter isn't stored just as a, as a character. There's more to it than that.
3: yeah so in the case of when you're talking about uh, say the fractal image I showed yeah. or you're talking about font, there we're actually doing the calculation on the fly but it's a very lightweight calculation.
2: Okay.
0: Um, okay. but when you're
3: talking about images we can there we can do the pre-processing. Well and I, I think see.
0: about that I think it was on it must have been on YouTube and so forth but that 13 gigapixel camera shot of Harlem, where they were able to, you, they, they show in the video, they just keep zooming on this image and, and the detail seems infinite. It just keeps going and going and going. Wow. So, But the big problem is it's a 13 gigapixel image. <sighs>
3: exactly. If you wanted to look at that on a Windows machine today or any computer, you have to download the whole image or a large portion of the image in, in order to view it. But the great thing about Sea dragon is you can just start with
2: you know something that fills your screen. Talk about a good use for a server technology. I mean, that really brings it home. What what kinds of uh, – now, C-Dragon, is this uh, something that's planned to be dropped into the next OS, or what's the plan for? Where What's its current state? So C-Dragon is still
3: a developing technology. There's a lot of work to be done to refine the concept and get the code right. We don't have specific plans for integrating it into the OS, uh, but we think it's something that's going to be a foundational technology for Microsoft over the coming years. We think-
2: so, so all right. So that's a good good answer. But off the record, where where do you think the good fit is?
3: There's n- a natural fit for C Dragon in any application where you're talking about. Uh, viewing large amounts of information and today that's pretty much every scenario
2: so it's it's really an os thing yeah it really I, should be
3: i, I think, think ultimately that's a it's a good place for Dragon. it's yeah. also a web thing too if you look at photosynth our uh, 3d photo reconstruction application without Dragon, photosynth wasn't possible
2: right? so let's just define photosynth real quick
3: so Photosynth, uh, we have actually have some algorithms that were built uh, with uh, Microsoft Research and the University of Washington for taking your two-dimensional photos, just your regular digital camera snapshots, uh, looking for overlap between the images and reconstructing the 3D environment in which they were taken. So in one of the original experiments, we went on to Flickr, we went to the tag Notre Dame, mm. and we downloaded all the Creative Commons images. And mm. we were able to actually recreate a 3D model of Notre Dame and then explore the individual images within the context of that
2: model. What I like about it is that y- y- not all of the images show at once. Just sort of the direction that you're heading in, the images that are required just sort of pop into view. Yeah, And then those- they go away when you're not looking at them anymore.
0: Which sounds very Sea Dragonish.
3: Yeah, well, so C-Dragon enables us to bring down those photos in real time, quickly over the wire, then zoom in and get more details. Uh, one of the interesting sort of philosophical differences between Photosynth and, and some of the other 3D reconstruction software out there is Photosynth wants to preserve the photo as is. The photo itself has value. If It's a picture of you, uh, a picture of your wife in front right. of the Trevi Fountain. There's right. inherent value. So rather than trying to pull and, and create this sort of authoritative 3D model of the place and pull right. all the details out... Photosynth is just about your photo as is, untouched in the context of the world that it was taken.
2: And it's mapped in 3 dimensions, Yes. which is very cool. Yeah, it <laughs> makes for it makes for quite the uh, navigation experience. Yeah. Do you guys when when you're using Photosynth do you do you have to like touch up the photos so that they're like essentially the same hue and all of that kind of stuff or do you just let them overlap whatever you know like you, you would you have a necessarily a day picture overlap with a night picture that kind of thing
3: but that's the great thing about the algorithm it, do, it really doesn't care it really is looking for crisp shadows hard surfaces bright textures the algorithm doesn't care if it's a, a winter picture a summer picture a day picture a night. No, but picture. i mean if two
2: pictures next to each other you wouldn't have a night picture next to a day picture it oh, would yeah, be smart enough to know that a day picture should be next to a day picture
3: uh, actually we don't uh, we don't go ahead and make those really? kind of judgments, those kind of subjective go- huh. judgments about what's the right way to display the information. Sure. We really look for images that closely match each other.
2: Well, then that that would it would naturally closely match something that's during the day. If neck one next to it's during the day, they would match closer.
3: Yeah, yeah, we, so we're I really looking more at the shape than right. we are at the coloring. Uh, So the shape is going to weigh a little more in that decision. But yeah, there's a natural preference for it to find shots that are similar to each other
0: and put those next to each other. Then there's also the concept of do you render the person standing in the foreground as part of the 3D image? Yeah, so
3: our 3D <laughs> image is actually just represented as a point cloud. It's actually just a, a very uh, subtle point cloud behind the photographs, right. and it's meant to give you the context of where you are in space, but without sort of you know crowding the individual photograph with all of the information required to build that 3D model. So it creates a very distinctive visual interface that we think really uh, highlights the photos themselves as as works of art or as memories or things that are important to people, rather than just trying to pull out the the construction information and sort of build something that isn't reflective of the original memory.
2: So other than a cool demo at, a, at Mix, where, where would Photosynth really have util- utility? I mean, there, there's huge implications, I think, for Photosynth
3: to change the way we think about digital memories in general. There is... Uh, the, the idea that you can take your own photos and create a synth, I think, has the ability to sort of become a, almost a, a, an art form into itself. An art form, yeah. But the real implications, long-term, for photosynth are about when we can build the connections between synths or, or between your pictures and synths that exist and sort of build one synth of the world. It's sort of an interconnected, wow. uh, collected memory. This idea that we can expose uh, implicit social networks of uh, your relation to people through shared experiences. Be able to say, you know, you've been to the Trevi Fountain seven years ago. Look how yeah. your photos relate to it today. Wow, right. that, that ice cream shop in the corner is closed. And and here's all the other people who have experienced the same thing and really hmm. be able to connect you back to your world and to other
2: people through your memories. It really is remarkable. It really is. I mean, the, the you hear the old cliche, the way the Internet has brought people together. But, I mean, in this case, it really, really has.
0: Well, thanks. That, I mean, that's one way to take this thing. Of course, I'm thinking about my renovation. And I'd love to be able to take photographs of my whole house with the walls off and with the walls on and be able to see it as a whole. Yeah, it, absolutely. I mean, that's where
3: you go back to sort of the photosynth as the art form. You can also imagine people doing even more creative things like that, like being able to mix paintings with the physical place because our algorithm will sometimes actually match a, a reasonably realistic painting or poster or picture mm. that someone takes in our Notre Dame yeah. uh, set from Flickr, actually. You right. can find that posters of Notre Dame have been synthed in with the actual building and they match up with the geometry. <laughs> that's so, cool. <laughs> you know, that, that, sort of, that sort of false positive that's still accurate it is really interesting implications for people to just kind of manipulate that to be creative and we think it, 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 there'll be fascinating results when people get their hands on this.
0: Yeah, the only we, the only reason you call it a false positive is because it wasn't what you expected. It's still positive.
3: Yeah, it's it's correct in that yes, that's Notre Dame and yes, this is where it belongs, but
2: it's it's a poster and not the building. The artistic side of my brain, Richard, is now thinking, "Okay, you get a bunch of monkeys together with some paint, right? And you make they all make paintings." And then you synth them all together and see what matches up. (laughs) <laughs> right, see what the algorithm matches from those paintings.
3: I can't say we thought of that scenario, but that's a great <laughs> example of why we really want to get this in the hands of the people. And we're working really hard to uh, get the algorithms so that they're faster. I mean, originally yeah. it took two two or three days on a supercomputer to make this kind of calculation across mm. a set of 100 or a 1,000 photos. Mm. Now it takes a matter of minutes on your average laptop. And we're going to get that down further, and, and we're going to eventually make this technology available to anybody. But it'll take a little bit of time.
0: I seem to recall from a video that... You actually figure out where the photo was taken from. I remember seeing a photo and then it also showed a point to a point. You create an, an angle that showed this is where that was taken from that would give that effect.
3: Yeah, that's absolutely core to the Photosynth experience is that what we're doing is we're actually calculating each of the camera points. Mm. So say you were creating a synth today, instead of standing in one spot and sort of spinning in a circle and taking photographs the way the way you do uh, even sometimes with an automated camera stand to build these gigapixel images, Right. Right. instead Photosynth works better with uh, more variety in the places that pictures were taken from and the angles of the objects Mm. because it gives Photosynth sort of a a wider view of the
0: object itself and can create a, a richer texture. Okay, let me go wacky on you. Camcorder, video. How could we incorporate that? I mean, I'm just imagining the power of taking a camcorder and walking around a building. Somehow taking snapshots from that and synthesizing them together. Frames. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, camcorder's a camcorder is just a representative
3: of 30 images per second or 24 right. images sure. per second. So if you, if you could take the images out, you could synth them. There's, there's nothing to stop you from doing that. There's a lot of work uh, in the research arena and in the product arena around Microsoft. Uh, we've done work with the ladybug cameras. Well, in- wait
2: a second, wait a second. Before you go on with that, I'm trying to ex- imagine what the experience of going through that synth would be. If you're walking around the building, it would be going forward, wouldn't it? You would be able to navigate forward and backward through wherever the camera went. Yeah. Anything that that the camera could see would be in the synth, right? So, the synth just doesn't go left to right. It goes in and out, right? As you zoom in. Yeah. Yeah.
3: It'd recreate the three-dimensional space. So, if you were walking through a room, say, in a circle, I mean, you'd get a pretty uh, complete picture of that room in your point cloud.
2: Wow. And... Wow, that see now that's something that I would do, Richard, you just nailed a, a really cool application photosynth. Is that something that we can download and and play with? You can't play with the synther
3: yet today. You can okay. download photosynth at labs.live.com and you can explore a whole set of collections like
2: uh um, You can't make your own.
0: You can't make your own yet. All right. It's something what we're working on. It'll be a little while though. You know, right. you know, I think another level on this, change the scale. I want to understand molecular processes, so I get a collection of electron microscope images and build a composition of a cell.
2: Dude, Tim Huckabee wants to talk to you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Just thinking of the possibilities here. It's one thing to represent the Taj Mahal, which you can go see, but how about representing things that you can't go see? Yeah, it's an interesting idea.
3: I mean, all that Photosynth really requires is that the object have reasonably defined textures and edges and shadows. I uh, don't have a lot of experience with electron microscopes myself, <laughs> but I, I recall the images being sort of relatively fuzzy See, and edgeless. you my
0: office. You don't appreciate just how much gear I have here. Obviously not. <laughs> I saw an interesting sequence. We used uh, as a demo of Photosynth of the space shuttle. I believe it was Endeavour after it took that hit to the uh, to one of its uh, tiles. And there was a big debate whether they were going to repair the tile or was it safe and so forth. And there was actually a photosynth mosaic made of NASA's photographs as they imaged the shuttle to decide what to do. Wow. And then you're able to see the shuttle as a whole, not try to figure out one picture from the next, but just spin the entire shuttle and then view it on given images of it.
3: Yeah, and all of your listeners can actually go see that collection still today that's up on uh, labs.live.com. And we've had an ongoing collaboration with NASA, so there's, uh, there's synths of the actual shuttle itself on the ground and in space, and you can inspect the damaged tiles, and you can see exactly the kind of information that NASA was looking at when they were making the decision on whether or not it was safe to bring the Endeavour back down or
0: whether they had to make repairs. You know, now getting back to things you can't see, wouldn't you love to see mosaics like that or photosynths like that of all of the Mars rover images so that you can actually have a lay of the land of an area? That'd be a
3: fascinating way to to view the rover images. I mean, it's the kind of thing where you can connect all that back together and sort of get an experience of Mars in a way that individual photos in a sort of static grid gallery aren't going to give you.
2: So what's the developer story for, for this kind of technology?
3: I think the developer story really lies in Sea Dragon. I mean, Sea Dragon is is a fundamental technology for being able to display this kind of rich digital imagery. Whether you're doing this 3D recreation like Photosynth or whether you're just talking about building a gallery for Mm -hmm. spaces or for, uh, you know, a social type site. I think at the end of the day, you know, developers need access to and, and eventually will get access to tools that really can handle uh, multi-resolution images and, yeah. and vector graphics in a much more uh, rich way and a much more um, net friendly way than they can today.
0: I'm trying to imagine how you would take a group of images that are are layers of each other, I guess, so that you have the macro view and then I'm guessing that as you zoom in on any given area, you're falling in on more detailed images. I mean this still sounds like photosynthemy. But I guess it's it's Sea Dragon. Yeah, I mean Sea Dragon is is part of photo. photosynth
3: is simply the combination of of those re- those three D reconstruction algorithms with Sea Dragon's viewer technology it's no more than that i mean photosynth at the end of the day is is really a sort of a showcase for what's possible in sea dragon uh, you know previous to having sea dragon available to us uh, the photo tourism work had been ongoing for a number of years but the information that it provi- that it uh, built was so rich and so heavy i mean sometimes uh, gigapixels worth of photographs in a collection mm-hmm. and all this rich 3d information and there was no easy way to make all of that information accessible over the wire and C-Dragon is an enabling technology for that. So whether it's 2D, whether it's 3D, C-Dragon is kind of the, the core technology for, for viewing these uh, you know very large objects and very large collections of objects in a seamless way over the wire.
0: Now, you, there's a couple of different technology you referenced here. I mean, C-Dragon is one of them. The other one you talked about was a JPEG format that's designed to deal with multi-resolution.
2: JPEG 2000, I think it was?
0: Yeah, JPEG 2000 is a proposed
3: standard. Uh, it was originally called uh, Microsoft HD Photo. It had been something that we developed internally and that uh, we found is actually an excellent format for enabling Photosynth. And it's something that Microsoft's been working really, really hard on standardizing uh, with a number of our partners and, and around the world. And it looks uh,
0: you know, very promising from our vantage and point. And the goal to be an open standard, anybody can implement it kind of thing? Absolutely. But we really don't need another restricted image uh, format ever again. I think we're past. <laughs> (laughs) that yeah i hear you there
2: (laughs) okay well let's move on to uh some of the other things that you're that you're playing with back in the office um maybe something that you're not showing here at mix that's that's really ultra cool
3: Yeah, we've got a number of technologies in development. At at any given time, the lab's working on a dozen or more projects. Mm. Um, Some of the ones that are uh, coming down the pipeline, in the near term, uh, we have an application for managing lists on its way. Uh, We call it Listus, you know, Spanish word for list. Um, I don't know if that's what it'll be called when it actually makes it in your hands. Um, But in a a matter of months, maybe even weeks, we're going to release Listus to folks. And what we're looking at is the list as sort of a fundamental data type. Right, your shopping list, your to-do list, your sort of productivity lists, but as well, your blog role is a list, your wish list on Amazon, and, and we found a place where you can actually centralize the storage management and creation of both your, your personal lists and sort of social lists.
2: Look at SharePoint. I mean, that's all about the list as the central player in the data center of uh, of SharePoint.
3: Yeah, Listus is a little different than SharePoint in that it sort of has a – it doesn't have an ACL security model. It's really geared towards roaming your data, so it's a a service rather than a server. But uh, you could you could theoretically build a similar-ish type of service on SharePoint if you took a lot of the other functionality out. With Listus, what we really tried to do was distill it down to the very core proposition of being able to create lists – as quickly or more quickly and more easily than you can by simply emailing yourself a to-do list or right. or dropping in Outlook. We wanted to make something where you can uh, syndicate your lists back out to yourself via RSS, and you can pay attention when other people change your public lists. You can. Uh, You can have private lists, public read lists, wiki-style public read and write lists.
2: If you think about it, a calendar, a series of calendar events is nothing more than a list.
3: Exactly. A a great deal of the data we work with is is nothing more than some ordered or unordered list of
2: items. More than one piece of data, you got a list.
3: is this where (laughs) Access
0: came from? You know, way back when? Access? The early days of Access was just a bunch of lists. It just got out of hand.
3: Yeah, I, I'm not real familiar with the early days of access. Uh, I'm, I was probably in grade school at those days.
2: Well, <laughs> <laughs> hey oh, I'm going to take a picture here of uh, of me, of my foot. <laughs> yeah, a couple, a
3: couple of toe pictures will really yeah. add to the, the of the Alex ambiance. Oh, okay. That's great. Another technology we're working on out of the labs, actually sort of near and dear to developers' heart, but it's a, uh, it's going to be a longer time away than Listus is. Uh, it's something that we're looking at is something that will take us to fully realize the vision, five, maybe even 10 years. But it's a technology we refer to as Volta. And Volta is the idea that as a developer, um, the idea originally was to separate your business logic from the technology itself, from your implementation. Uh, but today, we don't really feel like we've achieved that. Even with, with all the advances we've made today, we're still really far behind in that you have to make a lot of decisions, a lot of uh, painful-to-reverse decisions mm. about the way you deploy your code, whether you're going to run the code on the client or the server, very early on in the development process. And yeah. those decisions shape the, the logic of the application you're developing. And it can be very, very painful to reverse some of those decisions. And Volta is actually a way, uh, where what we actually do is we compile your .NET program into MSIL, just as it's compiled today. But then instead of just, just in time compiling into x86 or x64, we actually look for the runtime of convenience on the client side. So, uh, if you wanted to compile your .NET program into JavaScript, no problem. You just target JavaScript instead of x86. So suddenly you can write, you know, full object oriented code in .NET sort of irrespective, you could write WinForms code and compile it into JavaScript to actually run uh, within a browser. Now, granted, you're not going to get very good performance from a WinForms application ported onto a, a JavaScript-esque uh, a volt, uh, sort of a virtual machine, uh, but you know, for developers for whom uh, a solution like Flash or Silverlight is is too heavyweight, say general web development, where uh, mm. you know having a plugin might be a difficult situation, or something where you don't have control over the clients, or where you even want to just automatically optimize your experience for whatever is available on the client, the the long term vision of Volta is to be able to dynamically optimize your application at deployment. To say, you know, this client has Silverlight, so let's compile this application into Silverlight and send it to them that way, and say this client doesn't. Let's compile it into JavaScript and send it to them that way. Same application, same code written once. The compiler takes care of the targeting. You know, in the short run...
2: That's a little scary, Alex. (laughs) The
3: really
0: interesting part comes... I'm still trying to get ahead on the idea that this might be in a 10-year time frame. That's so far. To
3: fully realize the vision. Now, we think, and, and a core tenet of the lab is release early, release often. So we hope to get Volta in the hands of developers much, much, much sooner than 10 years. But to really truly realize the full vision of Volta, to really get to a place where you're writing your application logic sort of irrespective of the deployment environment entirely, where you just mm-hmm. write pure app code. And uh, this is the same way today, you know, your compilers take care of sort of getting that thing down to assembly and being reasonably optimized. We think we can de- apply the same principles to the way you deploy your applications, including... Uh, Another interesting feature of Volta, which we call tier splitting, the ability to define what part of your program runs on the server and client late in development. So with Volta, all you simply do is you write two classes that uh, communicate with each other. Maybe A calls method B, right? And you, you just define, say, A runs on the client and B runs on the server. And when we compile the application, we will create the client code, and we will create the server code, and we will manage the communication bindings between the two, which means no more having to write a web service, write a web application,
0: and then manage all that plumbing yourself. But I think the bigger thing here is you're going to change your mind.
3: Yeah, exactly. So if you say, you know what, B really didn't need to run on the server, maybe it's a client input validation. Maybe you have a simple thing like that that's a sort of a, a common pattern that, that we see in uh, pretty much every enterprise application from yeah. C, you know, CMSs right. and, and, and customer relationship management software. Just the idea to say, this is an address, this is a phone number. You write that logic once, have it operate on, on objects in .NET, and uh, you say, run this on the server originally, just like the, the standard patterns and practices from Microsoft and ASP.NET for doing input validation. You just say, run this on the server, and it outputs ASP.NET code in an HTML form, and it does a validation on the server. Well, with Volta, you can simply change one line of code, just a declarative statement at the top of that method that just says, run this on the server. You just change that to client, recompile the application, and it outputs the JavaScript to do that validation in the client instead of the server.
2: It's an interesting
0: idea. and when I can see the real motivation for that being, I do this initial deployment, and I'm just not happy with the performance of this part. So I right. remark these pieces to say, put this closer to the client.
3: Absolutely, you know, maybe you look at a, a particularly rich uh, navigational menu or, or some sort of you know interactive item on the page too,
0: and, and you say, you know, this doesn't run well in JavaScript. I- I'm going to target this to Silverlight. Yeah, or or I'll push it to the back end and let and make it do a computational block back there, and it, it just make that choice trivial.
2: Now, would you would you use this? Just for prototyping to find, um, you know, to find the ultimate architecture, or would you use this dynamically at runtime in full deployment?
3: I mean, the goal was ultimately to make it so it can be used in full deployment. Mm -hmm. I think any early version you see of this is obviously going to be out of the lab. It's going to be preview quality. So it's something you're going to want to use to prototype, but it should give you an idea of where the technology is headed and should help us sort of validate the hypothesis of whether or not this is valuable. I mean, that's why we release uh, software so early and we release it right. so often right. in the lab is we want our users to try it and tell us if we're insane because it's a very good it chance must, we are Alex
2: it must be a really fun job
3: it really you is know? I mean working at the lab is great because I mean, you
2: guys get to dream up things you're the you know imagineers of Microsoft if you will
3: Yeah, it's absolutely a a fun part. I mean, the real, what we think is our true focus is in applied research, right? There's a lot of people doing a lot of more creative, more interesting things than we're even doing in the lab. But a lot of them are are sort of relegated to research labs, right? They're, they're stuck in the lab and the technology isn't maturing sufficiently to get into your hands and your, your listeners' hands. And what we see in the lab is the ability to, to find this kind of interesting thing going on in Microsoft research or going on in the industry at large, and actually getting it into the hands of people faster.
2: Now, you have these um, Microsoft Research uh, events where you host, you know, you partner up with some sort of Microsoft event, and then you open up the labs to let people come in and look. And Richard, you went to one of these. I
0: went to the only one that was open to anybody other than a blue badge. Okay. Were they called TechFests?
3: Yeah, Microsoft Research TechFest. They hold it every year. TechFest,
0: April this year, was the first time they've ever allowed people that you know, didn't work for Microsoft to go to it. And even then, it was still very closed. Uh, I think the only reason I was invited is that I'm a a Microsoft regional director, as is Carl. But there was just a handful of, uh, quote, outsiders there. But you you imagine a a vendor conference space, exactly that same thing, little booths, but it's all Microsoft research projects. And let me tell you, these guys are up to a lot of crazy stuff. And is
2: this all NDA stuff that uh, you saw, Richard? Pretty, I
0: mean, pretty much. They, 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 there was things we were allowed to blog about, things we weren't. Yeah. I, I think the reality is they embrace the thought that if, if we're going to show this even to friends, it's going to leak. Right. And, and I think they've put more out there than we were inclined to. Hmm. I'm, I'm perfectly willing to look. And, and it, the consequence of going to that for our listeners was an awful lot of Microsoft research related shows. Right. That's right. We've had it we've had over the past few months uh, half a dozen of them
3: yeah, I mean Microsoft has a huge research and development arm with uh, Microsoft Research. They invest uh, a great deal of money in, in bringing in the best talent, really fostering the best ideas and Live Labs partners very, very closely with Microsoft Research. We share headcount with each other and we share ideas and and we think you know it's it's part of an ecosystem at
0: Microsoft of innovation. okay,
2: so what's next after Volta? Uh, Some more actually, cool stuff.
0: I got, a, I got a code work I want to throw in there. <laughs> All right, because I know and I know Alessandro Volta just fine, but I know there's a project out there called Tesla, <laughs> which must be related.
3: Yeah, so uh, Tesla is actually just uh, Volta. So that's one of the uh, just interesting uh, functions of being in Microsoft is that code names change all the time. Oh, I see. And so ah. they, they are actually one and the same. And you, you guys have probably heard Eric Meyer on on Channel Nine and, and at J A O O and Oopsla. Well, Eric talking. Meyer's
0: been here too. Yeah, yeah he exactly. was on our show.
3: Yeah, so Eric is the you know primary technical person on uh, the Volta project, on the Tesla project, ah, cool. and uh, the Labs is uh, sponsoring his work, and, and and you know we we just want to see it progress, and we're super excited about the possibilities of it in a really long term to kind of change the way people think about when they make business decisions versus technical decisions in their
2: code.
0: Okay, so right. next one. I uh, wait, wait, before you go on. Oh, I come on, I want to hear more. Oh, you okay? <laughs> No, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I've got a spin on this that may be a little more technically grounded for our listeners. And I want to know if I'm quoting this correctly, Alex. So we've got this thing called the CLR. And uh, it used to only live in Windows. And then we got it to live in SQL Server, but nobody used it. (laughs) <laughs> now we found a way to push it to the browser, you know, in a similar incarnation. And we've opened up the languages a bit where we're getting into Ruby and Python. And most importantly, JavaScript managed that JavaScript. being important because again, runs on the browser. So you're now giving me the ability to put the CLR in more places. Now I take a technology like Volta and say, All right, here's my common code. Let's try running it on different CLRs and see what happens. You know, the real thing I wanted to get when I looked at the CLR and SQL servers, why would I do this? How much do I have to learn to make this happen? If I didn't have to learn anything, then I'd try it. I'd just say, well, just take this .NET app, this set of assemblies, and push it to SQL Server and see what happens. That's
3: kind of the point of Volta. Is exactly that. Is to. I mean, there are scenarios for which uh, you know uh, Silverlight is the absolute best solution, and I think it's probably uh, it's probably simple to say that there's more of those scenarios than there maybe even is for Volta. There are solutions where hand coding HTML and JavaScript is absolutely the right solution. Right. But I, I think that there is a there's a, a middle ground in there where I think. Uh, developers are kind of uh, tired of having to hand write and hand debug JavaScript. There's bad tooling. There's limited support for uh, rich progr- programmatic constructs like generics and uh, you know sort of the tooling support like reflection. I mean, to, to be able to write a program that runs in JavaScript but have all the rich tooling that's available to you in Visual Studio is uh, is a really unique value proposition of Volta. But it, it's it's only sort of part of the vision. I mean, ultimately Volta is about tier splitting and being able to dynamically target. The, the right client for right. your program.
2: How would you take a WPF application and turn it into a JavaScript application? I mean, aren't there some things that JavaScript, JavaScript just can't do?
3: Yeah, that was exactly my point. There are a yeah. number of things that you'd sort of be insane to do in JavaScript, right? But rather than sort of dictate to developers, yeah. uh, what's the exact right way to write any one? So piece in of other code? words,
2: it's going to dither down and some stuff's not going to work.
3: Yeah, sure. so some things are going to work. The but eye not candy perform. won't be
2: there, but yeah, yeah but I the mean, basic functionality of the app will be there.
3: A great deal of the games that are written in Flash today will easily work in Volta. That's yeah. a you know a great deal of the sort of interactive menus and types of items that you would want to build in Flash to get a consistent, rich visual experience, but right. you don't because you don't want the the over encumbrance of uh, having to require a plugin
0: and all of the complexity. Or learn
2: action script.
0: Yes, exactly. <laughs> But exactly. take this up another level. You know, we're using dynamic languages so that we don't have to be so carefully structured in our coding. And now it sounds like we're coming up with dynamic architecture. So we don't have to be so carefully structured in our architecture. I can afford to be wrong. I could take this chunk of code I wrote once and move where it runs. Wow. I may well just
3: steal that line for our marketing <laughs> because that was very well put. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, um, so vault is a really interesting technology. Like I said, it's going to take a long time to evolve. Yeah. Uh, we're going to try to get it in the hands of our customers sooner rather than later. But it it is a, a long term vision, but it's something we really think will will kind of help with developer productivity.
2: Okay, now can we talk about the next thing?
3: So I, I I'm sort of out of things I can talk about.
2: Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, wait, wait.
3: I, I, actually, I can give you one more. I'll well, give you a,
2: okay. okay. An and then I got a question for you.
3: Something else that that's public that I talked about a little bit at the conference here. Um. It's, it, we have a technology in the lab called Entity Extraction. What a boring name, right? Hmm. But it's actually a machine learning algorithm for uh, classifying information, for looking at a block of text and saying, this is a phone number, this is an address, without ever having to write a regular expression again. Wow. Instead, you just take a set of data, you take a, you know 6,000 emails, you label those emails, you say, this is what a phone number looks like. You don't have to say what part, you don't have to say this is the area code, just say this is a phone number. And you point our algorithm at that training set, and it comes out with a pattern file. And it's then you can take the algorithm and the pattern file and point it at a larger set of information, like the entire search index or your email on your computer, Mm. and recognize that piece of information. And what's great is because it's machine learning, it can uh, recognize things that you would never be able to write a regular expression for. Huh. Um, simple things like phone numbers are, are a, a wonderful example of something where it takes the complexity out of it. Instead of a 16-page spec to be able to recognize phone numbers, with 40, 50-odd complex right. grep statements, you just simply train it on the right set of data but also recognizing things like reviews built into blogs. I mean, if you were to go out and look at a blog and somebody writes longhand, I give this restaurant four out of five stars. Right. Well, being able to look at that information and say, that's a restaurant review. Being able to, uh, huh. to browse the web and find an address on any page and map that address, even if the page hasn't provided a micro format or provided a link to mapping software.
2: Let me ask, is there neural networks involved in this?
3: I don't know the machine learning technology as well as I, uh, I probably should. Uh, so I can't answer that question exactly. What I can tell you is it's a really, really small piece of code. Really? Uh, it's actually incredibly small. And so uh, small enough to run
0: on a mobile device, like a wow. Windows mobile device. Probably not a neural net, then. Probably not. Uh, my, my immediate thought was, this already exists. It's how the spammers get email addresses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Right? You, take, <laughs> you give it the profile of what an email address looks like, then you point it at the internet and Wait. All right, Alex. So I'll, I'll tell you about a fantasy I
2: had while driving up here from Connecticut. And it's about a two-hour drive to Boston. So I have a little bit of time. You know, the radio station runs out. The radio stations run out around Rhode Island, and there's this long, boring stretch, and I've listened to all my discs, and, okay, you get it. So i I want to have a conversation with my computer in the car. You know, I want to be able to just talk to the computer, but I don't want to spend hours training it and write. I would have to write some serious code. I'd have to have speech server running. But basically what I want to do is, you know, when there's new email, I want to review it. Um, I want to ask what the weather's like in Rhode Island, you know, what the forecast is. I want to know what, uh, you know, the, the headlines are in world politics right now. You know, I just want to ask and hear and talk and, and listen and, um, you know, I, I, I played around a little bit with the speech recognition stuff in Vista, and it's pretty cool for just saying, you know, browse the web and navigate around web pages. I thought that was pretty neat, but I don't even want to do that. I don't even want to see anything. I just want to talk. And, uh, we've done some, you know, we've done some, uh, recent shows on speech server, and I'm wondering if, you know, what do you think? What do you, th- first of all, what's the current state of speech in research? And when do you, do you ever see this kind of speech as the only user interface kind of thing happening? Do you ever see that happening?
3: Yeah, so we don't do uh, any speech research in the lab right now. We're a pretty small organization, we have a few pretty uh, strict bets around the internet. Uh, I've seen around Microsoft. There's a great deal of interest in speech. I mean, we all know that Bill Gates, for a number of years, has been saying that a primary goal of his is to see speech as as one of, if not the primary interface to the right. computer, because right. it's the most natural. There are uh, tons of researchers working on it in MSR. There's the Tell Me acquisition. There's Speech Server. I mean, the my- Tell
2: Me acquisition. So I don't know what that is all about. Tell me, is a company that you acquired, or yeah,
3: Microsoft acquired a company. Uh, I, th- I think I have the name right. <laughs>
2: um, I just haven't heard of it. That's
3: all. Yeah, we acquired a, a company that uh, runs uh, some four one one services and has a whole bunch of speech recognition expertise. Uh, mm. I'm not. I'm not an expert in that domain. Uh, neither is the lab. But uh, okay, I've seen that there's a great deal of work going on in Microsoft around speech, and, and there's no doubt that that's a major investment we're making.
2: So what kinds of what kinds of gadgets? I mean, I saw the word gadgets in your bio. You know, like you like to play with gadgets and stuff. What sort of things are you really interested in?
3: Oh, I'm just a total gadget nut. Like uh, phones, especially. I, yeah. I always have to have the latest unlocked phone from HTC. I've got my little S710 right here. I'm a. I sort of religiously follow Engadget and Gizmodo, yeah. and and yeah. you know, digital picture frames all over my house and custom built uh. computers. I'm I'm a bit of a gadget nut.
0: You're hanging with the right crowd, man. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, speaking of mobile, I don't think we've talked about Deep Fish at all. Have you got any comments around? I mean, I'm looking at what Deep Deep Fish is is mobile software. It almost has a a sea dragon like nature to it. The idea that it would take a totally regular web page and scale it so that it fits on the browser form factor of a mobile device, and then can you zoom in?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it is Sea Dragon esque because it's largely inspired by Sea Dragon. Uh, you know, the web inherently is is single resolution; it's not a multi-resolution right. platform. But uh, the the great thing about uh, the mul- these multi-resolution environments is. Because you're sending down only a little bit of information at first, that, that first render of a large object is quicker. So right. we, we wanted to get that benefit of can we quickly render an object? Can we preserve the layout of web pages on mobile phones and use Zoom as a metaphor of navigation? So instead of crunching the page up to fit on a little mobile browser and just kind of having to scroll 30 screens down, yeah. A mangled
0: like, page look. Right. Yeah,
3: exactly. Instead, we looked at uh, creating uh, software that used the Zoom as a metaphor and was able to, to sort of pull in on the particular information that was interesting. Because the web's inherently single resolution, we had to create a proxy server, uh, between the client and the internet. So, uh, we released Deepfish as a preview in March and, uh, we ran out of capacity about, you know, 300 times faster than we expected to. Uh, The feedback. (laughs) You hit
0: a hot button there.
3: (laughs) Yeah, you think so. The feedback was overwhelmingly positive. We've had to, uh, clear off the comments on the blog a number of times so that that we didn't, you know, run out of space in the server. It, you know, it's it's absolutely uh, you know it, it's an interesting way to look at the mobile web, and I think you can see other products taking cues from that Zoom 4 on the phone. Deepfish is something we were showing as early as, a, as a, about a year ago to today, almost. Um, and, you know, it's definitely, uh, I think the Zoom metaphor is going to continue to be an important new way to look at the way we browse right. large information, whether it's pictures, whether it's the web, on the, on the desktop, on the phone, on, on any uh, sort of, you know, any device where there's a constrained screen size. You know, no, you know
0: it, it brings back the line, it's easier, it was easier to put internet everywhere than it was to build a great disconnected client. Yeah it's easier to s- to scale web pages than it is to come up with a great mobile device browsing environment. Hmm.
3: Yeah, I mean, at it, some level that's true. I, if I was to build DeepFish today again um, and, and I had access to the core OS, I'd build it a little bit differently. I mean, the interesting thing is you really can do incredible things on a mobile device. I mean, we've, yeah. we've seen all the latest mobile devices and, and, and there's no limitation to being able to build a good browser on a mobile device. But w- what DeepFish gives you that you can't get Thanks to the bandwidth on these devices, and thanks to the limited processors, is that really quick rendering initially?
2: Yeah, I mean, yeah.
3: if you could build DeepFish in an ideal world where where you owned the the OS from the ground up, uh, the way the way I'd build it uh, was to render the same on the server as we were doing on the mobile client, can have the same rendering engine. In that case. You can bring down that thumbnail quickly, and you can use that thumbnail to browse the page. But when you zoom into that page, you're looking at fully rendered HTML that's right. been rendering in the background while you were looking at the thumbnail. Nice, right? You know that—that's sort of the ideal scenario for something like DeepFish. And and you know, as we look to productize it, we're always thinking about: Is that possible? Is it possible to consolidate the way we render pages across servers, across clients, uh, mobile and desktop? You know, and that—that's a—that's obviously a long-term thing to try to figure out.
2: So you have this, uh, water theme, sea dragon, deep fish. Any, uh, coincidence there uh, between the two names?
3: No, it's not even remotely coincidental. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's purposeful. Yeah. It's, it's uh, you know, absolutely. Uh, we like to have a little bit of fun in the lab. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> one of the great things about working in the lab is we can sort of call our things whatever we whatever want. Whatever you want, yeah. You know, yeah, Photosynth sure. is the outlier there. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, in, in that Photosynth actually kind of sounds like what it is. It's, it's right. synthesizing these photos. But, yeah, I mean, Sea Dragon and, and Deep Fish, and, and you'll find that almost all of our logos for our products sort of share this sort of spiraling sea creature nature. It's kinda,
2: there's got to be a project called Ice. Iceberg.
3: There isn't a project called Iceberg, <laughs> but maybe I'll have to keep that in mind.
2: <laughs> Tip of the iceberg kind of yeah, thing, I right? I actually
3: just want to have a project called Anemone, so I can try to buy anemone.com and see if anybody can spell it.
2: Yeah, right. right. Or spell. Yeah, came say to it. my site because they
3: couldn't spell it correctly.
2: <laughs> or pronounce it. Anemone. Yeah, Anemone. yeah
3: exactly. I, I've got to fit in with Web
0: 2.0 there. I mean, I, I, can't, find, <laughs> I can't find half these sites. <laughs> Well, you you don't know know how to spell it. You don't deserve to come to my (laughs) site. We do this other
2: show, Alex, called DNR TV, which is a 1024 by 768 screencast. And it always surprises me when somebody sends me an email asking for an iPod version of, okay, now just think about this for a second. A 1024 by 768 show where you're writing code. Okay. In a font that's probably at the most 14 points.
0: We're going to shoot that down to a two-inch screen. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So, well, that would be a good, good reason to have, you know, the Sea Dragon or Deep Fish. Yeah. You know, then, then it would work.
3: Yeah. I mean, if you built something like that right into the core OS, where where any video or picture or text object could be zoomed, then absolutely, it makes all kinds of scenarios interesting. But we
2: actually did try that. We rendered it because Camtasia has an output for iPod, believe it or not. You know. Okay. We tried it, and yeah, doesn't work. Doesn't
3: yeah. work.
0: Can you imagine, can't see just, anything. Might as well
3: just be an audio show at that.
0: Moment. Exactly. Which we do. <laughs> That's what we do now. Yeah. You know what I was thinking about? I was thinking about how cool photosynth would be with surface. Oh, uh, that right. whole coffee table metaphor with yeah. the t- multi-touch screen, like. That sounds like a techno. I, the big problem I have with Surface, which I think is wild, cool.
2: That I don't have one?
0: Yeah. And I'm really That's stressed that I don't have problem. one. I'm, I'm on the list. Give me one as soon as possible. Is what is it, you know, what's it really going to do? I thought it'd be great for board games, but yeah, just looking at photos is one thing, but photo synth would just take it up a whole new level.
3: Yeah, I mean, the lab just in general makes a huge investment in user experience. We have about a 10 to 1 ratio of user experience, people to the rest of the lab, Mm. and we do that on purpose. It's, It's a much higher ratio than pretty much any software company because we want to design our software so that it works in these new environments. Surface was absolutely a scenario we had in mind when we developed Photosynth. But we also wanted to make it sort of brain-dead simple, that not, with nothing more than a mouse with a scroll wheel or, or your arrow keys, you could navigate yeah. Photosynth, no problem. Right. So that simple sort of minimalist environment lends itself really, really well to Surface as well as to desktop computing. So sure. we absolutely had them in mind. And, and I think Photosynth, you're right, it's just a natural fit to be able to sort of navigate these really rich worlds in in, in that big immersive. How many
2: projects do you guys have going usually?
3: Uh, it, it varies constantly. The lab is about 50% top-down engineering, like large projects, and about 50% bottoms up. I'm just kind of working on my own thing, uh, and it's purposeful. So it, it tends to vary depending on how many people are in the lab at any given time. But right now, it's it's almost two dozen things.
0: Wow. But you, And you bring up an interesting sort of statement there. So you handed a certain number of projects that said, hey, work on this, and also given time to just come up with stuff to work on? Yeah, so the lab's actually constructed in a way that that we try to make this uh, 50% mix happen
3: organically. So we have three types of groups in the lab. We have a research group who's purely researchers and research Mm -hmm. software development engineers, and they work almost primarily sort of on bottoms-up things. As those ideas progress, as those ideas uh, sort of show that they've got some legs, uh, we also have a central engineering group in the lab where we can take two or three engineers and a PM, and we can put them on a project and start to scale up that project. Whether it came out of research or whether it came from an engineer themselves or even from a lowly business guy like me, uh, we we can sort of you know build projects up. And then we also have incubations in the lab. Sea Dragon and Photosynth are both examples of that, where we have a, a dedicated team of people. Who are, are going to make this project happen? And it's, it's more than three or four; it's usually like eight to ten people. Right. And when, uh, when, and if the project becomes sort of a formal product into itself, those resources will go out of the lab with the project. Well, some of them may choose to stay, and they always have that option. But but the team itself is uh, is sort of the idea is to bring it out of the lab, and, and that sort of creates a natural funnel for us, where there's a, a great deal of people who are working. Almost entirely on bottoms up, there's a great deal of people who are working almost entirely on top down, and Mm -hmm. then each is is sort of expected to do
0: 20% of their time in the opposite direction. Wow, that's great. Well, and it's interesting to conceive of the idea that projects could migrate between those groups too, that a bottom up project evolves to a point where it becomes a top down project.
3: It's absolutely. I mean, what we've tried to do is sort of create a funnel, but without using processes to do it, just make it sort of a natural, organic collaboration between the different parts of the lab. And it's really worked very well for us. And and we think it it serves as a very good model for a way to have uh, innovation that progresses and really uh, turns into product impact.
0: Are there things we could point to that are now like shipping product in the world that came from the labs like that?
3: Yeah, you'll find that the labs influence the number of products. I mean, you know, from the way we brand things and, the, and our logo types right. all the way down to actual shipping code in products. Uh, entity extraction, I told you about ships in about 15 products. Every time really? you type a query into live search, you're actually running through entity extraction at some point in that query processing pipeline. Huh. And it's picking out addresses and other common things, movie names from your queries so they can give you those instant answers. In the Windows Live toolbar, you'll find that any page you go to that has an address typed into the page, not marked up or anything, lights up a button on that toolbar where you can actually uh, see all the addresses and map them very, very easily. And so so Entity Extraction is about 15 products. We've shipped all kinds of improvements to search advertising engines that that you're not going to see uh, sort of a discrete change to the product that Right. you can tell is from the lab, but we work in very, very close collaboration with all those groups. Did you
2: have some significant contributions to Vista?
3: No. So the lab's only been around for about uh, two years now. Oh, really? Yeah. So it's a, it's really? a pretty wow. new organization in Microsoft. That's amazing.
2: Wow. So there was a research and development department, of course, yeah, before absolutely. that.
3: Absolutely. Microsoft Research has been around for, for many, many, many years. I think they celebrated their, their 20th anniversary or, or 15th anniversary. Recently. So the
2: the Live Labs is, is, is focused on... Yeah, okay.
3: Yeah, on this applied research. I mean, Live Labs right. is ultimately sort of the glue between research and product groups. We're really trying to help create this this natural progression where we take all the, the excellent engineering work that's going on around the Internet right. and help make immediate product impact. And uh, there are many other labs in, in Microsoft, just like it. Office Labs is a good example, where their focus area is productivity. And our focus area is the Internet.
0: Right. You're Internet-centric, and, and Microsoft research is completely broad. I mean, I've talked to folks that are doing... Anything you can think of, really, languages and devices and so on. Oh,
3: yeah. I mean, we've got people researching AIDS vaccines and MSR. I mean, they do incredible, incredible Mm. research work in MSR. It's 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 sort of mind-blowing to see some of the things they do. Um, And the lab is is, is much more focused than MSR in our particular mission, uh, and we think it complements MSR well. I mean, across Microsoft in general, it's always been a company where everyone's always focused on innovation and sort of doing the next big thing. And, uh, you know, it, we're really trying to reflect that in, in the organizational structure and having blue sky research, having having practical applied research labs, and encouraging innovation all across product groups.
0: All right. So the you talked about the energy entity technology being in 15 different products, but it's not available as an SDR or an SDK that we can program against.
3: No, no, it's not available that way today. It is available as an SDK internally to Microsoft. Oh, I that, see. That's how the products adopt it.
0: Right. But you haven't made it pu- available to the public. What about Sea Dragon? I mean, Sea Dragon's in photosynth. Is it any other product right now? Uh, it's being prototyped against a number of products. Sea Dragon okay. is something that we've put out in Microsoft, and a
3: lot of different teams are looking at it. But like I said before, it has some time. Uh, there's still needs some refinement, I think, right. before it's ready to ship in a core Microsoft product.
0: And again, not something available to the, the regular developer yet. Yeah, not yet. Someday.
2: Well, Alex, um, coming down to the end of the show, is there. Any calls to action or uh, shout outs or anything that you'd like to?
3: Yeah, to I, I just want to encourage listeners, out check out labs.live.com. You know, subscribe to our RSS feed. It's just a pretty simple blog site uh, where we put up our new stuff. And, you know, stay tuned. We've got all kinds of interesting things in the lab, and, and a lot of them are going to be available to you to use and, and to develop on uh, pretty soon.
2: Do you uh, foresee coming out with, you know, publicity about new projects on a regular basis?
3: Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's just a—it's natural that the rate of, uh, of products that we release is just increasing. Like I said, the Lab's a pretty young organization. We're working on a lot of things, and more and more of them are going to be ready for public release uh, sooner and closer together. Great.
2: So we'll have uh, a few more shows in the can in the future, I'm sure. Absolutely. Alex, thank you very much. Thank you. And uh, we'll see you next time. On.NET Rocks.NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. Got
1: transmit a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, i